Welcome to the Biota Podcast. I'm Tom Barbley, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dave Kerr. Hello, Dave. Hi, Tom. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. So it's been, um, oh, I guess, probably about four years since you were last on a Biota Podcast. The last one you appeared on was uh, Can Artificial Life Explain the Cambrian Explosion? And you were also on the first Biota Podcast way back on, I think, May 16th, 2006. So what have you been doing in the past four years? Well... I've been kind of abandoning artificial life, at least in the programming sense, uh, not in my heart, but in time-wise. I've had two kids, got married, got a house, so to support all that, I have a job doing PHP. I don't really have time to work on A-Life full-time like I used to, so it's kind of been diverted out of even the hobby area for me, and now I've started working on a book where the protagonist is an artificial life developer. <laughs> so that's very interesting. We've had a running theme through the Bioter podcast, certainly in the past couple of years, which has been reincarnated in the Bioter transcripts associated with uh, self-publishing. And certainly what we've talked about through the Bioter podcasts has been associated with academic self-publishing. Uh, but I'm very interested in your work with regards to science fiction and artificial life. So without further ado, the, the book that I'm holding in my hand is The Creation Myth, which I understand is the first in a series. For folks listening in, what, what is The Creation Myth about? Well, it's about a protagonist named Michael Twyon. He is a genius of computers. He works on artificial life. And he's kind of in a a little bit different world from ours. It's, it is the same world in a way, but it's also different in many other ways. Uh, he's kind of thrust into a whole bunch of wars and, and circumstances that uh, his artificial life will help him through or help him save the world. This isn't uh, quite apparent in the first book. It's, it's planned to be a trilogy. The first book... Um, is focused on Daisy, his artificial life creation, but it's it's a subplot. The second book is going to focus quite heavily on artificial life as well. So, in terms of your experience as an art as an artificial life developer, what elements in your experience did you want to embody in the in the Michael character? That's a good question. I think the the primary experience I wanted to show was the the kind of satisfaction, the fulfillment of accomplishing something with artificial life and the kind of magic you get from seeing something that you've created come to life. And the book is set in 2025. In terms of actually creating the future, what, what elements from the present did you want to kind of carry on and what elements are new? In, in your vision of 2025? Yeah, well, in 2025 in, in the book, it's more or less the same as where we are now. But we have more powerful computers, we have flying cars, and but all, all that's kind of trivial. It's more of a minor thing. It's supposed to just kind of fuel your imagination, like, oh, here we are, a little bit in the future. Not too much has changed. But it's also an alternate past, so the the past that the history in the in this world is 
is again different from our world. So there's been kind of a suppression of technologies in certain areas. Um, so we're less advanced in some ways than we are now in this fictional world. So there's an interesting metaphor associated with artificial life as a kind of political movement. And certainly I found that um, in, in your writing, and I think it's a similar theme in my own writing, that uh, artificial life really almost em embodies a, a particular kind of politics, which isn't quite cyberpunk, and it's certainly not really affiliated with contemporary politics. Can you talk about that idea of, of artificial life almost like a, a political movement and how that's embodied in, uh, in the creation myth? Well, yeah, it is, it is a interesting angle on that. I hadn't thought of it specifically as a political thing, but it, uh, I find that artificial life, when you're trying to write about it and see where it's going to go, kind of becomes artificial intelligence. It just seems like that's what it's going to become. And so politically, it's like it is alive, and maybe it does have rights. Like maybe it should have rights, like a human being, and and one of the one of the themes in the book is how the artificial life handles being turned on and off. And you know when when it's turned off, it's not running. When it's turned on, it's all of a sudden it's alive again. And it, yeah, it doesn't really have any awareness of that time in between. So it has to kind of look at its timestamps and, and the, the protagonist is trying to teach it that there's an outside world. So one of the ways he tries to teach it that is by showing it that the timestamps have changed since the computer's been turned on and off. So I guess politically, it's kind of the same way. Like, can you just kill a person arbitrarily and just turn them off? I don't know. The moral question too. Yes, it is. It is interesting. About probably four years ago, I started approaching science fiction authors because I thought the quality of writing associated with artificial life wasn't particularly good, and also the kind of problems that they were framing were very different than the kind of problems that an artificial life developer would create. And I think that was something that I found very strongly in the creation myth was that your own connection with artificial life as as a developer created this very um, positive and almost uplifting aspect to um, the use of artificial life uh, in the novel. Do you think, I mean, you've, you've described a bit that that was somewhat subconscious associated with your own artificial life experiences, but did you have the view that, um, you know, this, this novel could encourage others in terms of exploring artificial life or, you know, making artificial life into a positive protagonist would kind of instigate a, a, a positive sense associated with the field? Uh, definitely, Tom. I'm actually really glad you noticed that because most books or most stories, you'll see that the artificial intelligence is basically always the bad guy. Very rarely it's the good guy, and even if it is a good guy, it usually becomes corrupted or, or there's a virus or something that turns it against the human race or whatnot. I wanted to show... Yeah, like a positive vision of the future and, and kind of like how it how it could be a good thing. So I hope it does inspire people to, you know, experiment and develop. There's lots of people working on artificial life. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that they'll you know purchase the book and not try to make a million bucks off them. There's probably only a hundred of them, or you know. <laughs> but I would I would hope that they would find inspiration in from the story. Yeah, I'm, certainly my own approaches to science fiction authors related to people who had never even considered artificial life previously. I think we have a, a relatively good communicative and somewhat lazing community uh, in terms of the internal dialogue. But the thing that always struck me is that if a science fiction author writes, a, as you say, a kind of dark artificial life, uh, killing all the humans novel, then it really does turn people off the, the possibilities. I mean, certainly a similar theme in, in your writing and my writing is this notion that the artificial life starts out almost like a, a newborn in terms of being uncorruptible. Uh, and I think that's a very strong image that a lot of artificial life developers create as they're coding away and what have you, that it is almost a kind of pure form of experimentation. And that certainly uh, struck me very strongly in your writing. In terms of this broader discussion of self-publishing, uh, how, how did you, I mean, did you originally start by, um, you know, writing a novel and approaching agents or things like that? Or did you always have a vision that it would be self-published? Well, I started writing it after I had a child and just kind of thought, you know, this is something a bit easier to work on. A book would be easier than actually making artificial life and dealing with all that that entails. But as far as publishing goes, I never really thought about it until I was kind of near the end of the, the first draft. And then I worked on a couple more drafts and and I kind of realized that I think my book is maybe too controversial or too far out there or whatnot and that even if I was to submit it to agents and publishers it might just end up being a waste of my time because I'm not saying the, the writing quality is bad maybe it is I mean, that's not for me to judge I think it's good but I just think the topic matter of the book would not be something that you would go to chapters or Barnes and Noble or whatnot. I don't, I don't think I don't see my book being sold there, at least not in the foreseeable future. So I started researching all the different self-publishing options. I went to Lulu and started playing around, and really I just ordered a I uploaded my book as a PDF, and then I ordered myself a copy. And I was just, like, just blown away. I was just kind of astounded by the efficiency. Like, you could buy one copy of your book. You didn't have to order 100. You didn't have to get permission from some publisher or, or anybody else. So I found it kind of, I don't know, liberating. And it's, this is my first book, so I don't have any experience with the traditional side of publishing. But uh, after I ordered that first copy I, I noticed a whole bunch of things like the font looked horrible and all paid the margins were off so I tweaked that ordered another copy and, and then I realized well hey anybody can buy their own copy of my book as well so I did a little trial run with my friends and sent you a copy 
It is an interesting process. I mean, some background, because I have had experiences with academic publishing. I wrote a chapter that was published in a book called Nature Inspired Informatics maybe two years ago. Mm. And when I wrote that chapter, I didn't have a sense of how much it was going to be. My hope was it was going to be like a standard textbook for about 50 bucks. And they put it up for $180, which I was actually quite offended with. I mean, my whole notion, as, as appears to be yours, is that... Um, you want to get your information out there. You don't want to create some artificial obstacle. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, I noted that the, the book had been torrented heavily and was available online for nothing. And I think my own experiences in this, in this field have shown that the self-publishing method eliminates a lot of the problems uh, associated with publishers and agents and all this kind of nonsense. With my own writing, a, a book called Field of Chaos... I originally approached agents with the view that, um, firstly, I had a body of work already academically and I would have something to offer to agents, and they wouldn't even consider... I sent them just an introductory letter, I didn't send them a book, and they wouldn't even properly correspond with me. I think this whole notion of agency on one hand and also publishing is really in a, a process of kind of decay and collapse, and I think the, the future is things like Lulu in terms of the ability... Firstly, to get information out there quickly at a reasonable price, um, but also to completely circumvent this very old industry that is, in fact, failing quite dismally. It's interesting you describe the process associated with ordering the first copy and doing various tweaks and ordering another one and doing various tweaks. And this is really the process associated with self-publishing. Um, is that you, And then you send it out to a few readers, and this whole thing, I think, captures uh, what increasingly a, a number of us are doing uh, in order to circumvent, and you described the circumstances with, uh, you know, commercial uh, bookstores and what have you. Well, Lulu gives you that ability as well. You can, I think, you pay twenty-five or fifty dollars, and then you can have the book available in those stores if people want to order it through those stores. So, really, increasingly, particularly with e-books and these kind of things, this is just an interface to get information out uh, very quickly. And certainly, I I commend your uh, work here because. Um, it's certainly something that I'm following currently, and also I think a number of folk in the community uh, have seriously considered. In fact, when we did the initial discussion of this, uh, we had um, Liz Swan on, and at the time she wasn't necessarily negative, but she wasn't particularly positive, and now I believe both her and her husband is um, a psychologist, I think. But anyway, they are now both self-publishing very heavily, uh, primarily for the reasons that I've described, that current academic publishing is just kind of spiralling down into its own uh, abyss. So in terms of in terms of the self-publishing method, you've done a considerable amount of work in the field of artificial life, and I have um, in the past encouraged you quite heavily to consider academic publication, particularly associated with AI Planet. I think AI Planet, and it's been noted by a number of other people in the community, uh, is just an outstanding uh, project, and particularly your ability to get together uh, a wide variety of external contributors to um, offer uh, creatures and these kind of things for the AI Planet environment. Would you consider writing a book on AI Planet and self-publishing that? Well, I, I suppose I would consider it, but I probably wouldn't do it unless it was a short book. I don't know if I could fill over... 50 or 100 pages. Well, I was thinking you could even... I mean, certainly the discussions that I've had with people like Jeffrey Ventrella associated with the work always relates to this kind of length of book. And I think even the benefit of having 
you know, 30 to 40 odd pages associated with the various, well, just the chronological history, but also some of the learning yeah. experiences I think would be really beneficial associated with AI Planet. Yeah, yeah I consider it. I mean, there's, there's also a lot of online documents that could be kind of cut and pasted and certainly and other other things like that but in addition to the self-publishing technology I've, I've also used quite a lot of open source stuff to build this novel uh, first of all I've written it on Linux in particular the Ubuntu distribution I started with Abbey Word which is an open source Microsoft Word alternative and then when I started using Lulu I started I had to convert it to open office yeah, and I used GIMP to do the image of the cover, and then I also wrote a little program called Kabikaboo, which helped me plan the the novel, just to take notes and put the outline into a digital form. And that again, that's freely available, open source, on Launchpad. Anybody who's working on a novel might find that interesting. So in terms of the trilogy, are you working on the the second one currently? Yes, I am. Uh, I haven't started formally writing it yet. I have a big plot outline on my hobby table here. It's a whole bunch of color-coded cardboard squares with little plot points on it, and it's laid out in a linear fashion. So I'm kind of making sure I have all the the plot nailed down before I start writing it, because I don't want to go back and change everything. Very good, very good. So the the creation myth as uh, as a book is that currently available for purchase, or are you still in the final phases of the launch? Well, the edition that you own is uh, the fourth fourth draft or the first hardcover edition i recently just finished the fifth draft which is i just cut some chapters and tightened things up so it's basically the exact same book but smaller and that is available as of today so it's uh currently for thirty dollars uh it's harder to cover so it costs a little over $25 to make, so I make about $5 per sale. Um, but yeah, it, uh, I'm also going to be making a paperback version for this summer. And I've been in talks with an artist to do a cover for that. And hopefully that'll be 10 to $15 and more affordable for everybody. Very nice, very nice. So, um, just prior to the call, you were asking about uh, Eric Burton's work with Critterdrug. Yeah. In terms of the artificial life projects that you're following currently, are you following Eric's work or are you following other folks as well? Well, re- most recently I've been following Steve Grand because of his uh, phenomenal success with Kickstarter, which I think is great. And yeah, I'm actually quite excited about that. I'd like to see what he does with that. Well, I am a little concerned because he insists on working alone, <laughs> which I find to be I find to be a dangerous notion. Because, well, Steve Grand, he's really good with the artificial intelligence portion and the the brain and the neural networks and whatnot. 
And my concern is that he gets carried away with the the environment and the physics and, and stuff of that nature. Because when I worked on AI Planet, initially it was supposed to be just artificial intelligence stuff, and I just ended up getting totally into the environment and focusing very heavily on that. And it's a rabbit hole. It's never as perfect enough, and it can always add more features. So I'm just... I hope he. I hope he makes it. Yes. He accomplishes the goal. Yes, it is funny actually. The notion of uh, constantly tweaking the environment. I mean, my solution with Noble Ape was to actually create separate simulations and then have a kind of notion of completeness. But I certainly remember with uh, AI Planet that it was a kind of continued um, arms race, for want of a better metaphor, in terms of actually tweaking the environment. And yes, I think Steve was certainly talking about an open API uh, when I spoke to him, and I think that's going to be really critical in terms of these uh, questions of environment in particular, because I think if he maintains an open API, then he will be giving the community the opportunity to create their own environments, which uh, may circumvent the concerns that you have. Well, that was the initial goal of Artificial Planet, and even my subsequent project, Nature, was to... Do the make an environment so that people like Steve Grand wouldn't have to worry about it, and you could just basically focus on your artificial life and artificial intelligence. Um, but really, it's it's a massive, massive project because as you start getting into the environment, you start realizing it needs rules, and you can't just let the artificial life change the environment at, at its will. Or else it would just like instantly become omnipotent, and you have to you have to give it rules, right? You have to, and how do you give it rules? You need some kind of cue for their actions so that they can they, they have to wait their turn, so to speak, and then and then their processor power. You can't let them hog the whole CPU, or they'll just be thinking forever between each each uh, time tick. So yeah, basically you end up kind of almost writing an operating system which is a huge undertaking really yeah, it is an interesting idea that artificial life simulations, particularly at a certain level complex artificial life simulations, are fundamentally like operating systems. And it's certainly a metaphor that I've thought about considerably, and others have as well, uh, with Noble Ape, uh, most recently uh, a fellow at Google, but also um, my friend uh, Pedro Ferreira at CERN. Both They both had developed this quite elaborate operating system model for Noble Ape. I think it's also things that Larry Yeager has considered with Polyworld. Particularly these issues, as you describe, of memory and processor management, you really do, as these artificial life simulations become, well, maybe not richer or more complex, but certainly have more entities involved, um, you really do have to do almost operating system-like uh, memory and processor management. So in terms of uh, in terms of Eric Burton's work in particular, I've uh, interviewed Re Eric um, periodically, and I really like um, some of the vision that he brings to the artificial life community. I found on YouTube only a few days ago someone had remixed one of my interviews with, in fact, the most recent interview with Eric Burton and put some uh, Apex Twin behind it and did various other things, which I found right, quite funny. Um, but in, in terms of Eric's particular vision of artificial life, are you uh, relatively sympathetic to that, or do you have a different take? Well, what's your view with Eric's work? I think what he's doing is fantastic. Uh, I haven't been able to contribute to it, um, but I have played with it, and 
Oh, that's great. I think you would be a, a perfect, perfect uh, target for my book. I think you'd really enjoy it. <laughs> and anybody who's worked on that project, crediting, I think would uh, really enjoy my novel. Yeah, there are solid there are solid elements of Eric Burton, and um, he's he's one of these characters that's actually quite an enigma. I mean, mainly because I've been communicating with him probably about three or four years now. I don't really get a sense of him as a person because I've never seen a photograph of him. Um, but in terms of my general interaction with him, and he does ping me occasionally on Skype, I do get the sense that he is, you know, he's really the avant-garde artificial life developer. Is is I guess somewhat framed by. Uh, you know, not just uh, Michael, but uh, a number of characters uh, in your book. A, a kind of following theme that comes through all of this, and certainly uh, Eric is, is very strong in this regard, but obviously, I mean, we have people like Bruce Damer as well, who part participate in the artificial life community, is this notion, I don't even want to use the term um, psychedelics, but there is this notion of kind of very deep um, psychotropic alternative culture elements in the artificial life community. What's your own feeling associated with that? Well, I find it very, very interesting that there's a link. My own work was kind of spurred by the kind of discovery of uh, psilocybin mushrooms and things of that nature. They kind of just kind of kicked me in the butt creatively and made me want to create things. As far as what it has to do with actual artificial life versus just general creativity, I'm not certain why that's the, that link seems to be there. But I think, uh, well, my own personal theory of uh, human evolution is that we evolved our intelligence by using these substances. Possibly, well, we were all apes or monkeys or whatever, and they discovered them on the forest floor or whatnot, and it kind of gave them a little spark to think more abstractly or something of that nature. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that will kind of carry over in a sense to artificial life. Like the environment that they live in might contain certain certain foods that plug directly into the artificial life's brain that will make them form new connections or or new thoughts or new worldviews. And then maybe those worldviews will be totally wrong, or maybe they'll be right. But I don't know. I think there is something there that uh, relates to human intelligence. I think these substances are, are more tools for the mind, even though they can be abused and used in various ways. It's interesting because Eric Burton is trying to simulate exactly what you're saying and his experimentations in this level of simulation seem to indicate that you could actually get, and here I don't even want to use the terms in, in quotes, but you could actually get some interesting scientific results from these kind of experimentations. I think the ability, as this returns to the idea of the politics of artificial life, is really very curious because... Obviously, with these kind of contributors, they have almost a hyper-political uh, component. I remember including uh, Terence McKenna uh, in one of the uh, Biota podcasts recently, I think one associated with Bruce Damer's discussion of machine language with Terence McKenna. 
And what you've described in terms of the apes coming down, uh, you know, feeding off mushrooms and changing is uh, fundamentally uh, Terence McKenna's, um, well, one of his uh, worldviews, let's say. Oh, definitely. He was probably the first one to kind of write that down and popularize it. But I think his view was that it changed the genetic code or DNA of the of the creatures that ate it. But I, I kind of think it's more of a natural selection, whereas the, the DNA of certain monkeys would be, there would be two different DNA strands, say, for example, and two different monkeys, and the one who ate the mushrooms would have an advantage and just pass that DNA on. You know what I mean? Kind of like a tool. The tool doesn't change the DNA. It just gives an advantage to the DNA carrier. Yeah, certainly a lot of McKenna's stuff deals more heavily with epigenetics than genetics, and I think his views are probably sympathetic to what you've said because what he is talking about in terms of the changing DNA is over many, um, many life cycles rather than uh, perhaps uh, immediate genetic change. And certainly his discussion of epigenetics associated with language and these kind of things seems to relate, as you're describing, to um, subtle advantages kind of being moved for, for generations. There is a very strong... Um, I mean, certainly when I started putting Eric Burton, for example, in the Biota podcast, it got a very strong reaction uh, from some folks in the community. And what I find particularly curious is that I, when I approach Eric, I interview him in very serious terms. Um, I'm relatively sympathetic to people with a wide variety of uh, worldviews coming into the podcast. And I think even if I could find creationist artificial life developers or neo-Nazis or a wide variety of other groups that I may not be necessarily sympathetic to personally, I think their particular perspective and use of artificial life would merit at some degree of broadcast in this podcast. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that struck me with the folks that were uh, detractors of Eric was the sense that we as a community should exist very much in terms of straight-laced science. And my perspective has always been that straight-laced science has never uh, adequately adopted all parts of artificial life. Otherwise, it would be a, a very different enterprise by now. And I do use the term uh, enterprise in, in the full sense of the word. What's your perspective in terms of artificial life as a, a product of change in the academic community? And do you think we need to be more radical in order to instigate change in the sciences? I think we're pretty radical enough. Um, I think it, the radicalness is you know, just a byproduct of where we're at culturally. Um, a lot of things like psychedelics are kind of shunned in mainstream. Uh, that doesn't mean they're bad, but, uh, you know, like alcohol, you can get drunk and blow up a car or something crazy like that, but we don't, uh, we don't get mad at someone who has a glass of wine at dinner, but we also don't seem to venerate people who drink wine and code. So it is it is a strange kind of culture that we have. Um, but I, I kind of think of these things more as like coffee. Like people drink coffee in the right code quite frequently. I think that's probably a very common thing. They drink uh, Jolt Cola or something very high in caffeine. And caffeine is something your mind uses to kind of help itself go about its day. Uh, so I, I think, you know, like, other substances could lend themselves to that 
type of usage as well. It's just that our media culture kind of only shows the extreme of these crazy people overdosing and doing crazy things, but really there's there's more rational kind of uh, productive uses for these things. It's an interesting idea, and certainly this is following the theme of uh, artificial life as a as a kind of political movement. That um, I mean, certainly I'm probably almost a borderline wowser in terms of my lack of uh, substance uh, consumption. I, I don't drink alcohol. I don't even really drink caffeinated products anymore. Um, but a large part of that is because I actually enjoy aspects of the quality of my mind which are completely independent and what i find most striking is actually the environment i live in uh in terms of you know my workaday life also a wide variety of other things affect my mind uh in ways that i can see are appreciable as well and i think what's interesting through your writing and also your general philosophy is um and this came through an ai planet the notion that artificial life ultimately can change both your uh, external environment but also aspects of your kind of uh, internal self as well. I mean, certainly AI Planet was um, heavily utilised by uh, folks that just wanted to use it almost as a tool for relaxation. And I think yeah. that is something that uh, comes through a lot of artificial life developers' work. As folks are listening in who maybe started uh, an artificial life project or are interested in getting into artificial life, what kind of uh, projects would you like to see coming out of the community in the future? Well, I'd really like to see something that's similar to Spore, but more of a more of a evolution um, pack to it, where things just kind of evolve of their own accord and of the environmental factors that are pressuring it, versus the user controlling it. Um, I, I kind of envision that. You'd have a, you know, a 3D world or worlds, each with their own life that all be possibly networked on multiple machines. And you would basically control an avatar and walk your way through and interact with these things versus kind of, I don't know, just telling everything what to do. I, I, I think that's kind of, kind of defeats the purpose. But, uh, yeah, I think, as you were mentioning that, these things are, are useful for kind of relaxation. I think there's almost a spiritual side to it too, as in you kind of you kind of you get to see like the sunrise and the birds flying over and like wow that looks really neat and the, it rains and there's clouds and the river makes a gurgling and the fish are eating their food and it's it can be pretty nice to experience just like in real life you go camping or hiking and sit down beside a lake and enjoy it. So I think there's definitely kind of a urge for humans to be connected to that side. Um, but it's really difficult in an urban area to go do that without driving for a couple hours and getting out all your equipment. Why not just have it right in your, on your computer screen at your whim? <laughs> Will your children be playing AI Planet? Uh, I doubt it, because it's it's based on quite well. I wouldn't say antiquated, but the technology that it is based on is rapidly becoming antiquated. And I, I'm actually hoping that it will just be something that 
either replaces it or an entirely new version. Um, the program itself is kind of becoming more of like a thing you might run on an emulator. Like, a, you know, you have your 8-bit Nintendo games. You kind of play them for fun, but I, I don't see the, the engine is too out of date and, and whatnot to carry on. So if there was a seed idea in AI Planet that uh, an existing or a prospective artificial life developer would pick up and run with, well, what are the core components in AI Planet that you would like to see carried on into another project? I think the, the, the fundamentals would be just that you kind of have a, a managed object system with each life form having its own object and... Um, just kind of the the engine, the way it works, not necessarily the actual components that I've built, because I'm sure there's better ones, superior ones now, uh, but just kind of the core philosophy of having all these objects, each getting their own slice of the CPU and, and just kind of letting them run freely. Um, the environment, I think, is really important that you have a an interesting environment that can simulate not only our own environment, but just kind of imaginary, I just made up a word, imaginary environment. <laughs> yeah. Very good, Toad, very good. So um, do you have any, any final words or any final thoughts for the artificial life community? Uh, definitely. Let me see. I wrote a little bit down here. Um, yeah. I wanted to convey not only the fulfillment of of creating artificial life but the, the struggle as well because it's not necessarily easy to do this stuff maybe for super genius it's easy but the average mortal it's probably pretty difficult so I wanted to put that down in words and kind of show that even with all the odds against you you can still accomplish something very good, very good. So for folks interested in picking up a copy, they should go to lulu.com and I guess, um, should they search well, for uh, David Glenn Kerr? Is that the way to go? Or how, how should they get a copy? The best way is to go to www.creationmyth.net All one word, Creation Myth. And on there I'll have a link to Lulu. The a direct link. Uh, right now it's not searchable because I haven't decided to go totally public with it yet. That will happen, but yeah, if if the version changes or whatnot, I like to kind of control what version people get so they get the latest one. They're not searching for the, maybe like one with a typo or something. So yeah, just go to creationmyth.net and there's a Link right on the front page to purchase. Very good, very good. You'll need to get me a, a postal address, Dave, so I can get you a, a copy of Field of Chaos as well, because um, I certainly owe you a copy of, of my writing. Um, and it's a very different perspective, actually, because it's framed in 1993. I've had the stunning luxury of having um, 
what appears to be a couple of fans already write an extensive Wikipedia entry for the book, which oh. is now available. Um, so that will give an indication of the uh, artificial life components of, uh, of my book, Field of Chaos, as well. And the plan is, as I've described, to actually produce Biota transcripts. My hope is that we will get your um, contribution from um, Can Artificial Life uh, Explain the Cambrian Explosion in one of the, the later ones of the Biota transcripts, because I think for my own personal perspective, uh, Roy Plotnick's contributions in that podcast dramatically changed my own views, particularly with regards to the emergence of intelligence. And I think that is just an outstanding uh, podcast that I'm pleased to say you were a participant on. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. I think about it every now and then. More often now, since we're doing this. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm, 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 I'm interested in having the, the notion of having children and contributing to artificial life developers, uh, both with you and also John Klein. So we'll need to get you back on uh, at a future podcast to start exploring um, the creation of children, I guess, um, in the artificial life developers perspective, uh, because that's certainly a, a topic that uh, other folk have asked about. Well, I think it uh, lends something to the raising, being able to think in that way. I think it helps you raise the children, see things more from their point of view. But Tom, I, I think you are due for an interview. You should be interviewed not only about your book, but about uh, Biota and this uh, successful community has kept going for so long. Uh, I don't know whether I'm worthy of an interview. I, I think I probably, <laughs> I probably put some of my own ideas occasionally into these podcasts. But um, certainly it was a real luxury to be able to sit down and actually spend a couple of days at Bruce Damer's place. We are a community um, that I think is very diverse, and certainly this comes from my original um, communications with you back, I think, in 2002 when you first contacted me. And to actually be in the physical presence of other artificial life developers is a, is a very rewarding thing in and of itself. Well, anyway, Dave Kerr, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, uh, on Biota today. And let's make sure that it isn't four years since your, uh, since your next appearance. I'm very interested in hearing, uh, in hearing your thoughts on a wide variety of topics, so we'll need to get you on sooner. Anytime. Thanks a lot, Tom. That was great.